Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, and we are starting in verse 18. Luke chapter 18, verse 18, reading through verse 30, a very familiar passage, a passage we commonly call the rich young ruler. You might notice in Luke's gospel, Luke makes no mention of this ruler being young, but Matthew and Mark uh, note that he was a young man, the rich young ruler. And so I encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 18. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible this morning, but you can use any faithful English translation you'd like. Luke 18, starting in verse 18. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this life and in the life to come eternal life. This is the inerrant, eternal, inspired word of God for us this morning, beloved. Now, as we look at this text from Luke 18 this morning, I do want to draw your attention back to a prior portion of Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 10. You don't have to turn there in your Bibles right now, but Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25, that is the passage that we commonly refer to as the Good Samaritan. We looked at that passage in either late June or early July, but the reason I want to draw your attention back to that passage is because in verse 25 of Luke 10, you might remember a lawyer. That is, someone who was an expert in the law of Moses. A lawyer approached Jesus and asked him a very important question. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Indeed, that's the same question that is asked in our opening verse today by this man we commonly know as the rich young ruler. What must I do to inherit eternal eternal life. Here we have in Luke's gospel two different men separated by eight chapters who have quite a few things in common. They were both influential in Jewish society. One was an expert in the law of Moses, a local scholar, if you will. The other, a man in our text today, was when, when Luke calls him a ruler, he's probably indicating that this man was in charge of the local synagogue. So we have two influential men in the religious life of Israel. Secondly, as we noted already, both men ask the same question, what 
must I do to inherit eternal life? They were both asking what I think equates to maybe the most important question anyone could ever ask the holy God. How can we be saved? Thirdly, we see that both these men ultimately are utterly confused about the nature of salvation. Look at the question they ask. They both ask, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That question is not a consistent question, is it? Both men thought of salvation in terms of something they must do to earn it. And yet both men also seem to understand on some level that salvation is a gift. Why do I say that? Because they say, what can we do to inherit eternal life? The question makes no sense. What can you do to earn an inheritance? The answer is nothing. You are gifted an inheritance, especially in those days. Especially in those days, an inheritance was something you were given via your birthright, especially if you were the firstborn. It is something you receive based solely upon the generosity and we might even say the grace of the person leaving you the inheritance. So the men, the two men, they shared this in common. They were both right that salvation is indeed an inheritance, but they were wrong in thinking that it was somehow a gift that they could earn. So religious, influential people in the nation of Israel who asked the same question, who were both equally confused concerning the nature of salvation. They had much in common with one another, and yet there is one thing that is very different between the lawyer in Luke chapter 10 and the rich young ruler in our text today. Why did the lawyer come to Jesus and ask him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Luke tells us he came so as to put Jesus to the test. His question was not genuine. His goal was to entrap Jesus, get him to say the wrong thing, so that, again, the Pharisees, they were already scheming at this point to find a way to bring Jesus up on charges so that he could be brought before the Sanhedrin and put to death. That man in Luke 10 was not asking a genuine question. But the rich young ruler, I think we can say in our text today, the rich young ruler genuinely wanted to know the answer to this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This was a man in our text this morning who truly desired to be part of the kingdom of God. He was desperate to know how he could be saved. And so he comes to Jesus Christ, as he should have. He comes to Jesus Christ to find the answer to his question. If we want to know how to be saved, if we want to know how to get into God's kingdom, there is no better person to go to than the king himself. So let's look at this text. We're going to examine this text this morning in three sections. Uh, the first section is verses 18 through 23, and this will be Jesus' interactions with the rich young ruler himself. Verses 18 through 23. And then we'll see Jesus interact with the crowds around who witnessed this event in verses 24 through 27. Jesus' interactions with the crowd. And then lastly, we'll look at his interaction with the disciples 
and verses 28 and 30. Those are the three main sections of our text this morning. And so first, Christ's interaction with the rich young ruler, verses 18 through 23. Now, we've already discussed the nature of this man's question, that it was a genuine question. This was a sincere, honest question. Unlike the lawyer in Luke 10, there was no trickery in this question. We know that's the case. If you would read Mark's gospel, and any time there is a, a portion of the gospel of Luke that you know has a parallel portion in either Matthew or Mark or John, I encourage you to read those parallel sections. In Mark's gospel, in his account of the same event, Mark gives a little more detail than Luke, which is usually not the case. Luke is usually the more detailed one. But Mark says, this young man came running up to Jesus and he fell on his knees before him. This man came running to the Lord and he fell before him, taking onto himself a posture of true humility. And as he dropped to his knees, you can probably imagine him being out of breath, gasping to get his question out. Lord, good teacher, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Mark's gospel really gives us a picture of someone who revered Jesus and was desperate to know how to get into the kingdom. And look at how Jesus responds to this man. He says first something very interesting. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now false, false religions, skeptics of the Bible, people who want to somehow deconstruct Christianity, they love to go to this verse and twist it and pervert it. And they'll say, see, how can you worship Jesus as God? Even Jesus says he's not divine. They would understand what Jesus says here and basically say Jesus reprimands the man for calling him good, and in doing so, he's admitting he's not God. That is the complete opposite of what Jesus is saying here. He is not saying to the rich young ruler, don't call me good because only God is good. Instead, he is saying what I think Kent Hughes puts very well, Kent Hughes notes, Jesus was saying something like this. Isn't it interesting that you recognize me to be good? Why do you think that is? Why do you think it is that you believe me to be good when you know that only God is good? Jesus is saying, young man, what exactly are you saying about me? He says, Jesus, Ken Hughes says, Jesus was trying to get this man to reflect upon his own soul. As if to say to him, think man, if I am good, and if only God is good, then who am I? And what am I doing? Jesus was confirming his divinity here, beloved. And whether the rich young ruler in that moment understood it or not, it's not clear to us, but Jesus is being very clear. We should understand what Jesus is saying. Jesus is very clear about who he was as God incarnate. And Jesus continues to the rich young ruler. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Now what's missing from that list of commandments? The first four commandments, right? 
These are all the commandments that belong to what we call the second table of the law, the second tablet of the Ten Commandments, the commandments that deal with how to love our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus quotes these commandments, and amazingly, the man responds, Yes, Jesus, I've kept all those commandments since I was young. And, you know, I really think that in his own mind, he's being honest here. I think this man truly thought he was living a morally righteous life. He really thought he was keeping perfectly the law of God. I don't think he's trying to lie to Jesus here. And he, like many Jews in his day, he believed he could earn his salvation by the fact that he kept those commandments that Jesus listed. Honestly, when Jesus responded to the rich young ruler this way, you know, what does the law say? Do not murder, do not steal, honor your father and mother, etc. Honestly, the rich young ruler at that point probably got the response he wanted to get from Jesus. He was hoping, I believe, that Jesus would answer his question by quoting the Ten Commandments just so that he could say, I've kept them, Jesus. And he could then hear Jesus say to him, well done, good and faithful servant. I think the man wanted confirmation that he was in the kingdom based on his own works of righteousness. And maybe this man did keep all those commandments from his youth at least externally. What do I mean by that? Well, he probably never did steal. He probably never did murder anyone. He, might, he probably never committed adultery. Maybe even, although this is unbelievable to me, if he has parents, maybe even he honored his parents, never dishonored them. And what's even more unbelievable to me, but this man probably believed it was true of himself, maybe he never even told an outright lie. But you see, what this man did not understand is that keeping the law of God perfectly goes way beyond what we do. It goes way beyond our external actions. Keeping the law was always, and it is today, about far more than what we do externally. Didn't Jesus say himself in the Sermon on the Mount, if you even look at a woman with lust, you have committed adultery with her in your heart. Did he not say that even if you have a hateful thought towards your brother, you are guilty of murdering him? This man, like so many of us today, had a very narrow, very small understanding of sin and his own depravity. He judged his righteousness and his external actions. He didn't realize there was a corrupt heart in him. And we need to understand this, and you need to hear me on this. Sin is not just what you do, beloved. Sin is not only about your outward actions, whether you do the things God tells you to do and refrain from doing the things God forbids you to do. It is also about your heart, your inward thoughts, everything that happens within us, which ultimately leads to external manifestations of sin. Someone put it simply for children to learn, sin is anything that you think. Sin is anything you say. Sin is anything you do that breaks God's law. It's deep. It's pervasive. 
And if you think, like this man did, that you have kept all of God's commandments from your youth, you do not understand the depravity of your nature. You do not understand your sin. You don't understand, ultimately, your need for a Savior. This man was missing the true reality of his own sin. And Jesus is going to show him just how deeply seated his sin went. Jesus responds in verse 22, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have. Distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Now why would Jesus say that? Is it because he wants every rich person to sell everything they have and give it away to the poor? Was he anti-rich? Was he anti-wealthy? No, he was not. We talked about this many times in the Gospel of Luke. Being poor is not a virtue. Being rich is not a vice. Jesus was not a communist. He didn't believe in class, uh, class warfare. Instead, he is getting to a deep-seated issue in this man's heart. He is showing this man how deep his sin went, how guilty he truly was of breaking God's law. The reason Jesus told him to sell everything he had was ultimately because he knew this man loved his money more than God. And this man needed to know that reality. Even though he thought he truly loved his neighbor as himself, and he kept all those commandments perfectly, Jesus showed him. And you know what? You're not even keeping the first table of the law. You are not loving the Lord your God with your whole heart, soul, strength, and mind. In fact, you aren't even keeping the very first commandment to have no other gods before the one true and living God. This man's God, beloved, we know this from how he responds to Jesus, this man's God was his money. And in that moment, Jesus exposes the young man for being the lawbreaker that he was. He was guilty of worshiping a false god. He put his money before the true and living God. Jesus was telling him, I want you to tear down that idol of wealth in your life. Destroy that false god of money and follow me. And the man became extremely sad because he was very wealthy. He wasn't ready to do it, beloved. He was not ready to lose his life so that he could gain it. He was not ready to surrender all for the sake of Jesus Christ. He wanted to keep trying to do what Jesus himself said earlier in Luke that you cannot do. He wanted to keep trying to serve two masters, God and mammon, God and his physical possessions, God and money. And R.C. Sproul said that the rich young ruler ran to Jesus with joyous anticipation, but he walked away from Jesus, totally disappointed. This man kept his money and he lost the kingdom. Sproul said it was the worst transaction he ever made in his life, and he was shown to have a value system that was empty and futile. And beloved, if we had Mark's gospel open in front of us this morning, you can see how Jesus responds when the young man walks away sad. Mark tells us, Mark 10, verse 21, that Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Isn't that strange? We've seen Jesus interact with the scribes and the Pharisees and respond in fierce anger. 
and basically pronounce condemnation and judgment upon them, but not with this man. Mark says Jesus looked at him and loved him. He did not treat him as he treated the Pharisees and scribes and lawyers. He loved him. I think he was moved, beloved. I think he was moved with pity and compassion on this rich young ruler. And we come to the second section of our text this morning as Jesus looks upon this man with love and compassion. Verses 24 through 27, as Jesus then interacts with the crowd, he he sees this man leave and he loves him and has compassion on him. And then he turns to the crowds and he declares how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. We might ask, The question, why does Jesus say this? Why is it so difficult for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And here I do think we need to be honest about the nature of material wealth, beloved. I know we read this passage and we think, well, surely Jesus isn't telling us that we all have to give up our riches and give it to the poor. And I think one of the reasons why we are so quick to point that truth out is because we don't want to face the reality that maybe Jesus is asking you personally or me personally, to sell all we have and give it to the poor because maybe our idol is wealth. We need to be honest about the nature of material wealth, beloved, because while we may say that being wealthy is not a sin, that Jesus doesn't hate the rich, that Jesus wasn't commanding all rich people to give away all they have to the poor, all that's true. The reality is material wealth is a great hindrance. Money, wealth, material possessions, it all makes the world very, very appealing and very, very comfortable to us. And it becomes easy for people to think that they are self-reliant because they have a lot of material resources. That's a very dangerous thought spiritually, beloved. And I want you to understand, this is not just a problem for the super rich. It is a problem for all of us here this morning. We have to understand, just even by the nature of being citizens of the United States of America in the 21st century, that makes all of us, whether we are poor or we have uh, wealth in this room, that makes all of us here among some of the richest people who have ever walked this planet. In the grand scheme of the human race, we in the modern West, in this country, we are stinking rich. Someone once said, America is so rich that even their poor people can afford to be fat. (laughs) Think about that. We need to be very wary of thinking that we are exempt from this issue of wealth because we might be, by the standards of this country, poor. Let me tell you, there are people throughout the world who would give almost anything to be able to live in a one-room cabin with a dirt floor with no indoor plumbing. That would be a luxury to them. Do you understand that? We are rich in this country. This is a problem. This problem of wealth is a problem for all of us. And this great wealth that we have been quote unquote blessed with in America, it makes it difficult for many people to enter into the kingdom of God. This is why the prosperity gospel is so popular. The thought that if we have a great amount of material blessings and it means God favors us and we are loved by God and He is blessing us. 
We need to take Jesus seriously when he says it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Do you understand what he's saying there? He's saying it is impossible for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of heaven. That is what he is saying. Don't be mistaken about it. Some of us have probably heard the thought that what Jesus was really referring to there was a gate in the walls of Jerusalem, the, gate, the, the, the walls that surrounded the city of Jerusalem, Jesus was referring to a gate known as the needle's eye. And this was apparently such a low gate that camels had a hard time passing through the gate. Not impossible, but they had a hard time passing through it. There is no credibility to that idea. There is not one single historical record that supports the idea that Jerusalem had a very low gate known as the needle's eye, which camels had a hard time getting through. It's a complete fabrication. I myself thought it was true up until this week <laughs> when I was studying the Word of God and studying. I, I try to tell you that I learn a lot through this work of studying to preach the Word. Jesus means exactly what He says. It is impossible for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of heaven just as impossible as it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And look at how the crowds respond. I need you to understand this, beloved. Verse 26, they ask, well, who can be saved then? Because they, like so many people today, believed that material wealth meant that God was pleased with you and that He was blessing you. Their thinking was, well, listen, if the rich can't get into the kingdom of heaven and they have so many blessings from God and all the material wealth they have, then who could ever be saved? What hope is there for us poor people? If the rich can't be saved, then surely no one can be saved. That's their thinking there. And Jesus says to them, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Now pay attention to that context. He's not talking about the personal challenges in your life. That if you have just enough faith, what may seem impossible is going to be possible with God. This is about salvation. What is impossible with man is possible with God. You see, the crowds, they responded rightly by asking who can be saved. Because they were beginning to realize that salvation, if up to us, is impossible. It's impossible, not only for rich people, it's impossible for all people, beloved, which is why Jesus say, says, what is impossible for man is possible with God. Who can be saved? With man, no one can be saved. Now, wealth may be a hindrance, as we said, and I think Jesus is making clear in this passage. It might hinder people from coming to the Savior. We need to be aware of that danger, but, beloved, there's a greater danger in coming to the Savior, and that is the sin that is in all of us. Sin is the greatest hindrance of all. It's a hindrance that no one in and of themselves has the power to overcome. Salvation, coming and following Christ is impossible with man. But beloved, it is not impossible with God. And the only reason anyone, anyone, including you, is saved is because God alone accomplished for His people redemption. God alone did the impossible. He is the one who took
took on flesh and dwelt among us fully God, truly God, and truly man. That is impossible. He is the one who went to the cross and died as a once-for-all-time perfect sacrifice, making atonement for all the sins of all His people. That is impossible. He's the one who defeated the devil and set us free from the guilt and power of sin. He is the one who three days rose from the dead in victory over the grave. And that is all impossible to us, beloved. But he did it. He accomplished it in real time and space. And not only did he accomplish Salvation. Not only did he accomplish redemption, not only did he make salvation possible, he also is the one who applies it to God's people. Through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, God raises dead sinners to new life in Christ. That is impossible for us. He is the one who gives us the faith we need to repent and receive Jesus. That's impossible for us. He is the one who forgives us of our sins and receives us as righteous because of Jesus and His, His accomplished work of redemption. And He is the one who freely gives us the gift of everlasting life. That is all impossible for us to do. With man, salvation is impossible. But with God, not only is it possible, with God... It is already accomplished and it is being applied to all of God's people. <clears throat> Rich or poor, what was impossible for us to accomplish on our own, God has done it. And this thought brings us to the third and final section of our text today, verses 28 and 30, 28 through 30, excuse me, Jesus' interactions with the disciples. Here, Peter who is normally the spokesperson for the 12 disciples, Peter speaks up and says to Jesus, we left our homes to follow you. What is Peter's heart behind that statement? Well, I think that Peter and the other disciples, hearing what Jesus said to the rich young ruler, seeing how the young man responded, and hearing how Jesus then responds to the crowds, I think Peter and the other disciples turn to Jesus and say, Lord, what about us? I don't think he's bragging in the fact that they left and followed Christ. I think he's genuinely asking Jesus, what about us? In Matthew, Peter, uh, Matthew's gospel, he records Peter's words as saying, what then shall we have? He's saying to Jesus, I think out of a place of maybe some doubt, looking just like the rich young ruler for genuine assurance, saying to Jesus, Lord, we did leave everything. We left everything behind to follow you. Have we gained anything by it? Have we inherited what this man was after? And Jesus' response to the disciples, beloved, are words of assurance to his disciples today. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more. Now listen to what he says. In this life and in the age to come, eternal life. Beloved, have you made sacrifices to follow Christ? Have you by faith 
died to yourself, picked up your cross to follow him? Have you lost your life to Jesus so that you can gain it? I want you to hear the words of Jesus this morning and have assurance. There's a twofold blessing that Jesus declares in our closing verses. You will receive many times more than what you, have give, than what you gave up for Jesus in this life. That's the first part of the blessing. Think about that. How do we often think about salvation? We think about salvation as, well, when I die, I'm, I know I'm going to go to heaven. Jesus says the blessings are for this life. Do you consider the awesome fact that your redemption, your salvation is not just a blessing for the life to come, but is a blessing right now? Think about what you have received already in this life by following Christ. You have received already justification. You're declared righteous before the Father right now. You've received already in your life adoption into God's family. God right now already sees you as a son or daughter. You have received already the Holy Spirit and His sanctifying work in your life. It's a present reality right now. Those are the blessings that we have already. Already you are justified before the Holy God. Already you are His child. Already you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and being conformed to the image of Christ. It's a present blessing in your life. Is that not far more than what you had to give up to follow Christ? And there's even more than that, by the way. You've received in this life already assurance of God's love. You've received in this life already peace of conscience, knowing that you are forgiven of all your sins, past, present, and future. There is no more guilt for you, beloved. Guilt's a big deal in our culture. People can't figure out how to deal with guilt. But we know. Come to Christ. And He's removed the guilt from us already. We have peace of conscience. We've already in this life received joy. Despite the circumstances of the world around us, we have received joy in the Holy Spirit. We already in this life, day by day, receive an increase of God's grace and mercy in our lives. We've received in this life already the promise that Christ will hold us fast and preserve us and hold us until the end when He will completely and fully consummate our salvation. Jesus says that for those who are willing to follow Him, those who are willing to lay everything aside to be His disciples, He says that for those who come and receive Him by faith, we will and we have received already in this life many more times that which we gave up to follow Jesus. And in the age to come, the second part of this blessing, the second part of His words of assurance to His disciples, to us today, beloved, in the age to come, we will receive eternal life. We will inherit the kingdom of God. How? How have we received? Not by looking to inherit eternal life, by doing something, by meriting God's favor, but instead looking with eyes of faith to what Jesus has already done in his life and death and resurrection. We receive eternal life by simply receiving Christ alone by faith. And when we do that, if you've done that, you have the promise 
or whatever you have given up in this life to follow Jesus, it will be nothing. It will be nothing compared to what you will gain, both in this life and in the life to come. 